there's something we've never talked about. And I think we need to clear the air. Um, you set me up badly <laughs> when you asked me to host, uh, to, to appear at the Oscars that you hosted because um, you made it seem <laughs> and it's really, really not. And you made and you did such an amazing job, and you were so chill at rehearsals, and you just made everything seem like it was so much fun. So when it came around and they asked me to do it, I was like, "I'm gonna be like Hugh. Yeah, I'll give it a go." How could you? <laughs> How could you set me up like that? I'm so happy to be talking to you because, um, well, first of all, because I'm just curious how you are, but also just, um, <laughs> this is, this just feels less nerve wracking than normal. I'm with you. I'm thrilled. I've known you for, I think we met when I was asking you to help me with the Oscar. I think that's when we really got to meet 2008. Uh, and we just immediately became friends and then thank God we got to work together and I pray every day that it happens again. But I'm thrilled. Yeah, um, we're good. Um, you know, it's. I often think of you, people like you, with little kids in this situation. Mm -hmm. How difficult that is. I've got a 14 and a 20 year old, and for me, being stuck with them is awesome because they don't <laughs> want to be with me. So it's been a good three or four years before I've walked in the door and got the daddy. I walk in the door and say, like, you know, like that one. So I'm still getting the sigh and the eye roll, but. They're with me, whether they like it or not. How about for you? Like, how's it been for you? Honestly, I, I've got to say, we have everything we need, and so, um, and, and and thank goodness, so far we've been spared the the worst tragedy of this time. So right. we've just been spending a lot of time together. I think the first the first week was really overwhelming while we were just trying to figure out how to do school and and take care, take care of everything. I, I think we hadn't realized how much we relied on people. And so um, getting getting back in touch with what the weight of our lives actually was, was, was humbling and, and the right thing to do. And yeah. now we're just in it. We're just, we're kind of in the pocket of it and we've got a routine down and you know, it's a magical age. And, I, and, and I've got to say, not for nothing, uh, Jack said, mama, uh, on a day that I was supposed to be on set and the movie got pushed. So, you know, I feel like you have to take Good it all you. in. Take it all oh, in. Cool. And this How is time Jack? that... How old is Jack? Jack, Jack? Jack will be on the 24th. So he's six months old right now. And Jonathan turned four in March. So, you know, it's a really sweet, sweet age. And uh, how's Adam? Send him my love, will you? I haven't seen him in ages. He's good. You know how he is. He's great. I know. He's always, there's, no one more, there's no one more zen, chilled, I know, on the planet. And if I've seen him in crazy be, situations. If you're going to be quarantined with another adult human, my husband is the one. By the way, I bet you, you, would, you, you would say the same thing about Deb. But Adam's always welcome to come over. But <laughs> yes. You. Because Once Deb open up makes... My Deb makes any situation. She could have fun in a paper bag. She really she could. could. So, yeah. So we've been having fun. I was just going to say, I think Adam's the same way. And that's great for people like us because mm -hmm. what I learned about you when we were on Les Mis is that you're actually, because you're so charming and you're so unflappable, but you're actually really serious. <laughs> and in, in terms of how how you prep work and how you commit yeah. to a project and your ability to just sort of laser in on what be done. I was, I think that that's something that people don't totally understand about you because you are so charismatic and because you do have the musical theater thing. And right. Um, right. so I think that someone like Deb is great for you because I think, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you guys compliment each other. Not many, not many people spot that. Yeah, absolutely right. I'm, kind of a little like my dad in that way things can become very serious blinkered this is what we need to do mm -hmm. nothing will take me off my course um and it can be a little boring i'm sorry these things are pinging i try to turn it off I mean, I'm, we're just gonna go with it um 
but I can just be a little serious and a little boring. And actually, Deb will kind of say that to me. She'll be like, hello, hello. <laughs> Like, okay, we can we can have some fun here, you know. So she's awesome for me. I I never found you boring. I just found I was just it, it it was a because it's a very comfortable depth with you. You know, it's not you're not someone who actually rushes to fill silences. Um, you're mm. always up for a laugh, and like that. So when I say that you're serious, you know, you love you love a laugh, and you do love to have a good time. But um, but anyway, it was something I felt like that really. Because number one on the call sheet with Les Mis, I feel like that made all of us stand up a little straighter and dig a little deeper and not mm. get caught. Because I feel like with musical theater, it's so easy to get caught up in the joy of it and the right. just just the pleasure. You're so few people get the gift of expressing themselves in that way. And so right. when you're working on a project like that, I feel like it's very easy to get uh, carried away by that. But I just felt like you were just so focused on what the story was and who your character was. And, you know, I I'm sure I'm speaking for everybody when I say how inspiring that was to be around. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let me return the compliment by saying we rehearsed for nine weeks and I remember your first rehearsal. I remember we were up in that little room upstairs with the rehearsal pianist and we were doing the thing and I walked out of that rehearsal and I said, I, I rang Deb and I said, I, whatever money you have, put it on Anne Hathaway winning the Oscar because in our first <laughs> rehearsal, I just saw an Oscar-worthy performance. Literally, oh I was just, No, of course I didn't tell you, but it was astonishing. <laughs> it was astonishing to me. And I love that when you kind of get blown away by actors. We all know I'm in rehearsal. I know what you're going to sing. I know your dialogue. I've read the scene. And I was just literally just like, what was that? It's like you played basketball my whole life and someone comes on and you go, oh, that's basketball? Oh, that's basketball. That's how it, that's how it was. But I have, I have to, I'm very grateful for you for many things, our friendship, your support on that, because it was an intense time and it was a weird I don't think a lot of people understood. Lame is, I had maybe three, four songs, but you had sub two, one really major song, right? You know, people had their song, their day, but you had a day. So it was kind of like super, the Super Bowl. It was like an opening night on Broadway. It wasn't like films where you get into a rhythm. It was, oh, on Thursday, I sing my song. <clears throat> How's that? I got a sore throat about this, and so there was this for everyone, and and it built a camaraderie, I think, between us, don't you? Like everyone felt for each other that feeling of pressure, like yeah, it's your day, don't screw it up, that thing. Well, and that was what was so great was because you know my, my favorite type of movies to do actually stage work as well um, are ensemble pieces, and I feel like it's it's because. Mm. Everybody does get that that little moment, but you're all helping each other along, and you're all. And I, I always find in ensemble pieces, there's so much listening that happens to each other, yeah. quiet, quiet support of each other. And um, you know, I, I'm always so grateful when I'm on a set and my cast cares about my performance as much as I do, and so mm. they're they're protecting me just in terms of the zone energy of the day just in terms of not creating a distraction. Um, and I've got to say, I'm just going to tell a story, a name droppy story for one second. Um, because normally that's something like you build up to. And when I was working on Devil Wears Prada, I remember Meryl had this one day and like, it was the, the scene where Miranda takes all of her makeup off. And she has that mom, she's describing kind of the cost of being who she is. And Meryl, just the entire crew knew what she had to do that day. And I've never seen a crew work more quietly, more intentionally. And it was amazing. Anyway, that was just a tangent. Um, but uh, but I, that's one of my favorite things about doing it. And I felt like on that job, we all we all really shared the um, shared the lift of it. And um, yep. and it was beautiful. Your researcher on Lame is you did all this came to the set with all this research, which I actually found through Tom Hooper, our director. He said, you should check out this research uh, Gans done. It's like really good for everyone. And so, and it was unbelievable because Amy, um, I get confused. Is it Amy Stevens or Amy Hammond? One is her family name. I, I, I know her. So well. I hope it's Amy Hammond because I've sent her a bunch of monogram stuff. 
And it's always AH. <laughs> so. No, but then I see her email as Stevens, I think. Anyway, Amy Hammond, <laughs> who's a dramaturg by training and now does research and everything is practical and not just like, look how much research I've done, but this you can really use this to create a character. And I would have worked with her on everything apart from Wolverine movies since then, in the last eight years. Everything mm-hmm. I've done. She's been Whoa, phenomenal. beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I actually just got all my her. research books for five books for her on the Music Man, which has been amazing. So on the Music you. Man, oh now you're just showing off. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but did you use her on Bad Education? Yeah, I used her for Bad Education, um, and it was incredible because I feel I feel I feel a real weight playing someone who's alive, who's living in the Bronx right now, who's, you know, I'm depicting the worst time of their life, of this man's life, the people in there. And and I'm not doing it to tar and feather him. I'm not doing it to kind of say, ah, isn't this terrible what he did? You know, obviously we tell these stories as a cautionary tale to learn something, but, you know, I'm doing it at the expense of the most painful part of someone's life. So I wanted to make sure that we really justice to the situation that we were wherever possible true and not just sort of making things up um and also Mm. to understand so that's where amy to me was just invaluable i saw hours of footage there was one bit she found me a bit of video from you know whatever news channel interviewed him and so the actual news piece was 40 seconds and she had an hour and 15 minutes of the original including the bit where they had to stop and the interviewer went to go to the bathroom and they just had the camera rolling on frank and he's chatting with the camera like that kind of thing i was just watching it was gold did i was gonna say do you feel like you feel like that was a treasure chest when you found just someone just sitting what was there anything about that particular moment that you remember about the way he was with himself when he didn't have to perform yeah there was a a warmth there was a warmth to him and i heard many stories but like he didn't have to be he wasn't on and he was just chatting with the camera people and interested and curious about them and their life and he seemed very much at ease and from my memory of it at that particular time he was talking about the school budget but things were happening at the same time as about the embezzling was happening at that time. But that's, and that's what I think I really wanted to focus on in playing this character. We are not all one thing. And it's so easy for us to vilify people, judge people. They went to jail, they did something terrible. And of course it was terrible. But how does someone who's a good person get to that? How does the quicksand of lying, you know, become to the point where you've stolen $12 million, you know? So, yeah. The sum total is $250,000. What? She's $250,000. That woman has a set of balls on her. When I get my chance. Well, you never will. She's going to be Nassau PDs for the taking. And that shitbird son of hers. Okay, Bob. All right, let's do this right. Just put the phone away, Bob. And why should he? Because we will lose everything. Tell me, you worked with Amy for Modern Love, right? Which I just thought was spectacular, by the way, and. No, it you can't so compliment me before I compliment you. You were just talking about Frank. Did you work with Amy? Did you work with Amy on that? Um, you know what? I didn't. I I had Terry Cheney, who was the woman whose uh, whose story my episode was based on. I spoke with her and uh, asked her a lot of questions. It was really important for us, you know, dealing with um, bipolar disorder that we understand from her perspective, not just as the woman whose story it was, but also as a bipolar woman, what annoys her about and what upsets her and what does she feel that stories about bipolar disorder get wrong? Like, because we were just like, you know, what what are the traps that other filmmakers have fallen into that just really upset you? So we were having that conversation. I was asking her about, I was asking her a lot about the physicality of it um, Mm -hmm. and just her experience. And then right at the end of the conversation, she says, and by the way, I wrote a book. And I said, oh, oh, you did? And she said, yes, I wrote a memoir about what it was like to come to terms with being a bipolar person or someone who has bipolar disorder. 
And I was like, um, <laughs> may I please read that? So I just, the script was so vivid. My conversation with her was so, to me, felt so complete. And then the book answered everything that I could hope for. And then, so I didn't actually work with Amy on, on Modern Love. Also, and I don't know how this, I don't know how this applies to you. I never want to um, mistake my feelings for actual work. But the reason I wanted to do this episode was because there's someone in my life who I very much and who I know never sees themselves on screen. And that was what led me to this character. And that's what, what led me to want to say, say yes to this was because I wanted to, I just wanted to show this person that I love them and that I believe that they are worthy of love. And, mm. and I feel like it's Did it bring so you too close to the um, no, actually it didn't because, uh, because I've never had the conversation with them that it's them. It was more in my own, wow. it was more in just in, in my own, uh, space, you know, um, because yeah, just because, but I found that my, I, I really wanted to, because I, because what you were saying about villainy. And I think it's the same thing about stigma. And I think that I don't want to go into the reasons why storytelling has been the way that it has been, but I feel like that it has been very based in the concept of good and bad, right, wrong, black and white, um, right. holy and evil. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure those stories absolutely served a purpose for a time, but it feels like we're moving out of that time and into a gray and into a gray area. And you know, I, I, I'm just so happy. And that, that's where I think your history in particular is, is really at, a, at an exceptional level because you are such a compassionate person and you bring that to, to your parts. And I'm never, whenever I take on a role sometime, and, I, and I'm always attracted to, uh, to people that I think, I, I really always like to play people that maybe uh, get left behind kind of easily. And mm. um, and I'm always asked by studios, uh, oh, but what if that this person's not likable? And I say, don't worry about likable. They will be lovable. You will understand mm. them. If you understand someone, you really get out of this like, don't like thing. And I, for me, it feels more satisfying. You want to know who I am? Here's who I am. I'm in a supermarket years ago looking for some peaches, like a craving for peaches. You know the way you wake up sometimes with like a crazy, crazy craving for peaches? Well, like that. And I'm shimmering. What you were saying about, about Frank, about wanting to, to be compassionate for where they at, I thought that that just really came through in your performance. And there's, I, which I thought was, and you know how much I love your work, I think this one might be your best. And yeah. you do, and you do something, and and that's cons and that's really saying something because you. I, I don't think I've ever seen. I've never seen you be bad. Like you know, most people have like one clunker, but you're just like. <laughs> I did him in Australia. <laughs> I did him in Australia, and then picked up by YouTube. <laughs> All right, you know what? I'm gonna turn. I'm gonna stick Amy Hammond on that one. I'm gonna be like, I want to see Jack. I'm literally dead. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but there's this moment where you're, you're speaking to Ray Romano on the bleachers and kind of realizing that his world is collapsing, but it hasn't quite, isn't quite ready to let go. And you do this thing where you're having a conversation and you, you not you, but you, Frank, I see the wheels turn as, and, and it's just this moment where he, you just looked you, you chose to look inward and you, and I could see the wheels turn in his mind about, okay, what's the right way to play this? What's the right way to play? And the look on your face was so complicated. And then Frank makes a choice and it all, and it all relaxes back into the mask. And I, I've just mm. been dying to ask you, was that just one of those things that happened that the camera caught? Did you know that you wanted to do that ahead of the scene? Um, do you mm. even know what I'm talking about? <laughs> do you know that moment that I'm talking about? No, yeah, it happened in the scene. I have to say, thanks. I, I'm really a bad judge of my own work, but when I saw this, I was, if I can be objective, I was like, oh, there's, oh, there's some stuff in there. I'd, 
that is some of my better stuff that I have seen. And I think what happened was <laughs> working with Corey Finley, I know it's a weird thing to say, but um, I think it's because, and that seemed as an example of it, I really made a conscious effort to not plan too much, not control too much, because I do do a lot of work. I like to work a lot. I like to re rehearse. I'm like you. I like to research. I like to know. And I think I've been guilty in the past of that being a little bit of a ball and chain in the scene. That, I mean, if you do a certain amount of work and you make a certain amount of choices before, you probably won't be bad. But actually, I think you need to risk being bad. And so if, if, if I can think back to that, I remember that scene really well. And it was one of maybe a dozen scenes where I just thought, let's just turn up and see what happens. I'm working with great actors, I'm working with Ray Romano, Alison Janney, you know, Annalie Ashford, so many brilliant actors, um, Geraldine. It, it, just let it be. I'm working with a great director, Corey Finlay. He's young, he, he's great, he's open, he's got good taste. You don't have to worry about giving over something bad that's going to get edited in. And so I think a lot of that happened. I remember we did a bunch of different versions of that scene. Somewhere he broke down crying. Somewhere he was just angry and very defensive and I'm not going to admit anything. Others where I'm, I'm your best friend, Ray. And all along I always saw Frank as someone who felt that he was in charge. He could make things perfect. He could control things, which is probably not dissimilar to what I'm describing in me um, in a way, in that feeling of being able to control, you know. So letting go of that and then hopefully seeing that in the character that it dawning on him that is he may be drowning um and it may be too late and it's a long answer i'm going a little red in the face because i feel like i'm being egotistical in my answer but um you know it's sort of just uh it was it, it was a film where i really enjoyed letting go more I want to congratulate you. That's the first time in the, I think, 12 years I've known you, I've ever heard you approach paying yourself a compliment. So I, I think this, this is real growth to you. <laughs> I agree with this is one of your better work. Um, so I have a, um, did Corey, did I've got Corey a question for you, Mike. Oh, but I just want to, you're on yeah, to go my on, follow up and then I'll, then okay, I'll dive follow in. Up. I was wondering, did Corey do anything in particular that made you trust him? Because what you're describing, I really relate to that idea of prep. I love prep. I'm a nerd about it. And I do think that sometimes uh, when, I, when I'm upset with myself in a scene is when I feel like I am leaning more on the prep than the moment. And um, so I'm just one. So, so, and, and, but one of the things that can cause that, that leaning on the prep and not letting go is when you don't totally trust the person that you're giving the performance to. So what is the thing, if you had to narrow it down to one thing or several things that Corey did? Great question. Our first meeting, and I remember saying, what's this about? Are we just retelling a front page scandal story like 20 years later so that we can beat this guy up again? And he said, no, he said, I want to understand how lies, particularly institutional lies, come into being. I want to understand the human process, the psychology of how we can slip into good people, can slip into really bad behavior. How does that happen? And I was immediately like, oh, I, I like his philosophy of storytelling, his approach. He's very humble. Man, the, he's the most humble person I have ever met, I think, in mm -hmm. uh, like genuinely very humble and very smart. He's a writer. He's a theatre guy. He's a Brooklyn playwright. He wrote Thoroughbreds as a play and mm -hmm. a producer read and said, you should make this into a movie. And he said, okay. And the first day on set of Thoroughbreds was his first day on a movie set ever as a director, right? So, oh and he does God. a lot of prep. But I, yeah, I, I, I'm taking a pause because I don't think I've told anyone that. But I'm going to tell you, I don't mind telling people, I think. I went up to him just before we started filming and I said, I've spent most of my career thinking that my job, if I'm number one on the call sheet, is to kind of be like the quarterback, like give me the ball coach, don't worry, I got this, give it to me, like, oh, don't worry, two minutes to go, we need to score a touchdown to win, give me the ball. And because I always thought, no one, you want to, don't want to get to a close up on the biggest scene of the movie and say to the director, ah, I'm just really nervous about this. Well, I don't know what, 
I don't really know what to do, but let's dive in. And I made the choice probably because of who Corey was. I could tell who he was uh, as an artist. I made the choice to just be honest with him. And I, I would say to him, like, I feel weirdly self-conscious today. Or I'd stop a take and go, um, this, is, this is really bad. Can we just stop for a sec? I just feel nervous. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in my head. Uh, and I would go in bright red. I would immediately, and I would pull him aside and say, this is, I know this is one of the three really important scenes. And I just feel that pressure. And I would, I've always felt it, but I've never said it because I thought no. I'm A, a bit embarrassed and B, that's not going to help anyone. And then you can have everyone at Video Village going, what? <laughs> so I told him, man, it really helped. It, it allowed, it brought all of us to the space. It, 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 Corey was by the camera. He was there. He was watching. And he, I remember him saying to me, just said, I will not let you go home unless you feel great. He says, and if we don't have it, we'll come back and shoot it tomorrow. So don't worry about that. We've got that wow. time. And kind of doing that was really life-changing. You know, and it's not the first. I did it with Jason Reitman. I certainly did it with Aronofsky. But I think as I've got older, I've got more brave in being honest about my fears and my insecurities. That's amazing. And I'm just like, as someone who loves you, um, I'm so proud of you because you do that. You are, you're like, you're so pro. And the idea, I'm sure for you to take up a little bit more space and it's like, you know, cause you, you, you just, you come in and you just want to contribute so much to the whole, the idea of you taking space for you. I'm just really happy. I'm just really yeah. happy. I don't Thank know you. how to do that yet, so uh, we're gonna have to have a, <laughs> I'm gonna have a follow up about that because I'm. I don't know. I remember saying to you, I remember to lay mirrors, and I said, oh, you know, I'm so glad we're doing this live because I just hate recording. I just hate recording. I get so self conscious. And you said, hey, you just haven't had enough wine. <laughs> do you remember oh, saying that? Oh yes. And I said, I said, what? I said, really? And she goes, oh, yes. oh, yeah, at least a glass or two before you record anything. <laughs> so you can be vulnerable um, and, and very helpful. I think this kind of behavior goes beyond the bounds of immoral. It, 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 it's cruel. It's, it's heinous. It's, it's sociopathic even. Uh, sociopathic? What? Shameless self-interest, the, the, the unstable personality, the, the parade of rotten marriages. It... Frank! There are three things I want to ask you about specifically um, with your performance. I found, Deb and I watched it and we were so moved by it. First of all, this is actually a fourth question, but John, I love John Carney. Like I love mm -hmm. him. I, I've spoken to him a couple of times and I would love to work with him. It, it, Tell me about that experience of working with John. Well, so John, I'm a huge fan of John's work, and mm. I I don't remember what movie I emailed him after, but it was just a, a just a note or something, just being like, "This is this is incredible, um, big fan of your work," and and we just kind of had an email relationship for close to ten years, where he wow. would send me something and uh, I would send him something, and we were just we could never find the thing. And then one day, out of the blue, in my inbox was this script. So, um, and I and I read it, and I told you a little bit about my personal connection to it. And I, I was just so happy to say yes and and come in. And you know, with John, so much of it is a sense of play. And you know, he's really curious what the actor, uh, what you have to bring uh, to bring to it. And so, um, so it was great. So I got so much support from every department about you know, the costumes and, um, and you know, that whole Lexi sequence, that was so much fun. That was just me and our costume designer going absolutely nuts. And, um, I literally, I was watching it as he walked out to the car park and I was like, please, there's going to be a big car park dance number. I can please. <laughs> and I spotted one of the extras in the background. And I was like, that guy was in the supermarket. He's a dancer. He's a dancer. And then he came <laughs> To see you just letting loose and doing your thing, it was just heaven. Did, I know you had a blast doing that. 
Well, so I did have I did have a blast because as you know, it's just so much fun to do that stuff. But there you know that you're a New Yorker. You know that day when all of a sudden it's winter? Like uh, there's just there's just no going back. Yeah, <laughs> and no all of the cold decides to arrive uh, at the same time. That was the day that we were in the parking lot and I forget what was going on. There was some kind of storm that had either just left or come in. So the winds were like, the winds <laughs> were like stay indoors level and it was freezing. Right. And we were at that uh, fairway in Red Hook. So we're right next to the East River. So the, the wind coming off of the East Rude. River was making it even colder. And it was just one of those things where we did it just by sheer force of will. Like me and the dancer, we just threw our arms around each other, huddled up, and we're like, we are wow. not leaving this parking lot until we get it. And I mean, even the producers, John was even like, I don't know if, if we can do it. If, if Maybe we have to call this. Is it safe? Are we going to get it? It's so hard. And we were like, no, we know we have this. We just need to get it through once. Once we get it through, once you see how great it is, you're, we, 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 you will, like, it'll be fine. So we worked for hours just to get one take. And then once we got the one take, you know how it goes. All of a sudden, everybody realized it was possible and it just started happening. So we would do one take, turn around, do a second one immediately. And then we would all have to run into buses or cars or into the supermarket, get warm. So that you, so then yeah. we would like kind of sit and chill for about 10, 15 minutes. And then we would go outside Ooh. and do it again, two right back to back. But we did it. I mean <laughs> That's been, it just it just feels like injuries waiting to happen to me that like dancing in that kind of cold you get hot you've got too many layers on then you're sweating and then you cool down like well done it, it was amazing i had no idea never crossed my mind you were in anything other than florida conditions basically you know, it just how, looked it, you like, know how it is no, because that's it what looked you like an mpm musical baby <laughs> yeah. so, the, the, i really want to ask you because i don't, I do know someone who has bipolar, but I never really talk to them in depth. And I'm sure there's a lot of people like me who are going to watch Modern Love, your episode of Modern Love. And I finished, both Deb and I just went, oh, that's, oh, that's what it's like. And obviously, you, you know, you had a real case to go on. I really want to ask you about the moments. From memory, there's at least two graphic moments where the down, I'm not sure what you call that moment, that cycle, mm -hmm. when it comes on. And I was like, that's what it's like. It's that immediate and that debilitating right away that, you know, within a minute you're in bed and then you're there for three days. I, I'd love to hear more about that because I thought that was fascinating. Well, you know, I think that, one of the things that I learned after the episode aired was like me, like you, everyone has someone in their life that has either bipolar or, or something mm -hmm. else, something that requires a little more space and education. And that's the thing that I can never understand is if we all love someone, why on earth are there stigmas about it? And I have to think right. that it's, it's because there is that awkwardness of not knowing how to talk about it. And, um, and a lot of people told me that this episode gave them an opportunity to talk about it. So I was, I was really proud to be a part of something like that because I do think that, um, and, I, and I learned that from this, when I really understood the, the weight of walking around with, um, with a mental condition um, I realized I'm like, it's not up for people who are already working so hard just to live, to make space for themselves. It has to be the rest of us who, um, you know, it has to be the rest of us doing that work. So, um, and I just thought to myself also, whoa, we really need more representation of mental health and art if a 32 minute episode of a rom-com anthology is speaking to this issue and making people feel seen in a way that they never have been before. We need to be showing up as artists and we need right. to be doing that. So, because, so, so, which leads to my answer to your question, which is, I don't think it's the same for everybody. I don't think that it's, it shows up. Um, I talked to, Ch to Terry about that, about, you know, whether or not that was an accurate representation. And, um, and, and she said, you know, you know was comfortable with that representation and I think you know 
in my own experience in life, when my moods have shifted, I don't know, I won't even go to the reasons why, but I've had moments in my life where my moods have turned on a dime like that. So I went with that reality from, mm. from, from mm. my own experience. I don't know, I found the whole thing so powerful. And, you know, I, you've broken my heart on screen uh, several times in a movie that I was in, you know, one of them. Um, <laughs> you have that incredible ability to really rip your heart open in your performance, which in the end is what it's all about, right? Um, you also happen to be brilliant at making us laugh and doing various other things, but in the end, I, I've always thought our job is to melt the hearts of the audience, and you can only do that if you're mm -hmm. willing, brave enough. But the scene in the diner with your co-worker, and I, I don't know the actress's name, I'm sorry, but it was so, I completely cried watching that because I've, I, I do believe that all of us want to be seen. We want to see each other, we want to be seen. It's kind of simple in a way. It kind of drives everything we do. And we spend a lot of time building up masks, weirdly, to kind of cover because we're a little either nervous that we're not enough or I can't show them that, which is a little bit of what I was describing in my process just 10 minutes ago. But that in that moment, the release that you could feel as an audience in watching your character finally just speak all these things that have been held down terrified of people finding out it's over for me all that fight or flight that happened but no one can find this out or it's it's all over was so inspiring as an actor but as a human being it was so beautifully wow. done now i'm going to ask you a similar question to me what were you thinking going into that scene and how did that scene transpire did it transpire in a different way and what you thought it would? Yeah, that scene. That scene uh, did did go a little differently. And um, I remember when we were making Les Mis, like every time I had to do something with you, I was so grateful that it was you because I felt held and cared for and seen. And I just knew whichever direction I was going to cut, you were going to be right there because that's who you are as a person and that's who you are as an actor. So Quincy Tyler Burstein, who I who was my co-star one of my co-stars in Modern Love, is that kind of actor. She is who you want to be with in a scene. She, she's who you want to be with in a scene when everything's going perfect. Mm -hmm. But she not a lot of things went perfectly when we were shooting the scene. So she was especially who I wanted to be with in that moment. Unfortunately. And I think this just happens sometimes when, you know, you're working on a job and everything's moving so fast. And I really feel for all the departments, you know, doing a TV show is very different than doing a film. You, it shoots so, so fast. So unfortunately, a location was chosen that was underneath a subway platform. And that was where we had to shoot that scene. So we have this seven minute long scene and we had trains going by every two minutes yeah. then every two minutes after that and then we would get a four minute break and it would do again and then we would have one minute and then the trains pattern would start up again so when we were shooting that scene we would have to it just didn't we couldn't stop so we would be doing the scene and she would say something and I would be getting ready to say my line and a train would go. And we all just agreed on set that the way we were gonna do it was we weren't gonna yell cut, I was gonna hold it <sighs> until the train passed and then sound was gonna say we're good and then I was gonna say my line and then Quincy was gonna say hers until the next train went by and that's yeah. how we shot that scene. And the thing about it is and it was such a lesson for me as an actor because as much as we want to control the right. circumstances in which we shoot and you know and as and as great as it would be if everything was always perfect the scene cut together fine 
you know? So if I'd, and the way, and I just, Quincy and I just made a decision that we weren't going to let anything throw us. We just, when I, when I, I wasn't going to get pulled away and I was just about her and she was just about me. And I'm so happy because if we let annoyance or frustration or any of that stuff creep in, mm. it would have undermined the scene and it would have probably shown up in the final edit when by keeping it out, the only thing that was in the final edit was the scene itself. But yeah, that was hard. <laughs> I'm so glad you told me that. I mean, it, it's a beautiful scene, but from both of you, it really is. I mean, both of you, I was just, we were, I was blown away by that scene. I hadn't, you have no idea that that difficulty is going on, but it's a great, it is a great reminder that if you stick with each other, yeah, and, and you didn't that, allow everyone else. You didn't allow the energy to break. You didn't allow the that no. sacred space to change, and so yeah. then you end up working with that. The um, it felt very of the space. Yeah, mm. the, you know how it is. The sacredness of the space isn't defined by the perfection of the space. The sacredness of the space is divine. Is de, is is defined by the intentionality of everybody in it, and mm. everyone just shifted their attention, and we just said, okay, this is what it is. This is how it is. We all wish it would be differently. Let's not blame anybody or get caught up in, you know, mm. let's not throw anything or have any of those things because that's not actually what the, the thing that matters the most is. The thing that matters the most is, is telling the truth because you're right. Yeah. And I also believe, I believe it was the strength of the story, um, Quincy's strength as a scene partner, but also the strength of the writing of that scene. That's right. even something that was so far away from the way you want to be shooting a scene like that. Um, the power of it still all held us in place and held us in where we need in order to tell the story. So, um, so yeah. You just, you just reminded me, there were, there's two directors I've worked with that don't allow cell phones on set, Darren Aronofsky and Denis Villeneuve, and both of them had exactly the same reason, which is exactly what you were saying. It's about intentionality. And both of them mm -hmm. talk about the space being sacred and he said, I don't care if you're 50 yards over there. I need, yes. you've done your job, you've set up the scene, you're not needed right now. If you're on the cell phone, it dissipates that energy, that intentionality of everyone is making this story. Um, yeah. And the, what you just did is a great example of just everybody all in. And, yeah. and, and that holds up. Um, I, I don't scared? mean to contradict you. you. Was Sorry, I scared? Yeah. To be perfectly honest, I was angry. And I was angry that I was put in that position, but I knew that if I made the anger about myself, I would have lost. And um, so I just allowed my anger to not be anything except for energy. So I felt, and I, and I just, I decided to use my anger as fuel to focus more precisely on what it is that I needed to do. But I actually, I was very calm, you know, because I, I but I also felt like, because if I gave into it on any level, <laughs> if one yeah. cell of me gave into it, I was going to, I was going to betray the scene and make and center myself in a moment when on so many levels that would have been inappropriate. So, um, yes. so, but I'm all, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all, I'm always scared. <laughs> I'm usually scared, but, um, but I'm also, <laughs> I'm also a lot of yeah. things, you know, scared's just usually yeah. one of them, but, and I didn't mean to, I don't want to contradict you, but you've actually worked with three directors that don't allow cell phones. Was Tom one as well? No, Christopher Nolan. Oh, Nolan, that's right. Yes. Yes. Chris also doesn't allow chairs. Doesn't he? But I, uh, so I've heard with him twice. Doesn't allow chairs. And his reasoning is if you have chairs, people will sit. And if they're sitting, they're not working. That and he's hilarious. right. And he's right. Yeah. And he winds up, I mean, he's, he has these incredible movies in terms of scope and ambition and technical prowess and emotion. And always arrives at the end uh, under schedule and under budget. So I think he's on something with the chair thing. I, re I remember my uh, my lawyer was doing the deal for the Prestige, and he rang me and he goes, "Man, I'm having a problem with the trailer." 
Um, Chris only was <laughs> only has joined trailers, so so two people in a trailer, like cut in half. For those people who don't understand, and you know, you're at the point of your career. You know, you've spent years of having your own trailer. You're at a, whatever it's called, Class A, blah 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 blah. I've never been particularly fussed about trailer, like, mm-hmm. but he's like, man, I've done all this work to get there, and so. <laughs> I said, listen, I don't really care. He said, let me, let me talk to Chris. And Chris rang my lawyer and he said, here's the thing. I understand people need a trailer if they're going to hang out in their trailer. He goes, but Christian, Dale and Hugh will share a trailer. I promise he will never sit in his trailer for more than one hour. And I promise we are done at 7 p.m. every night and yep. we'll be home. And I was like, I'm in. And he was true to his word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do you need an apartment on wheels when you're never in it and you're actually working? It's true. Yeah. It's true. And and by the way, just in case any actors are watching this, um, it is a lot more energy efficient to have fewer trailers and more of us in them. So just in case 100%. You're, thinking, you're thinking more sustainably about how to do it. Vegetable counter. My ostensible search for peaches was in reality a search for adventure. Maybe even love. I just didn't know it at the time. If you can find love in a supermarket early in the morning, you know you can trust it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. Um, okay. you, you dropped Christopher Nolan nicely. Yes. Well done. Two films. I like that. Um, talk about Catwoman. <laughs> can you, that's okay. Oh. Can you talk to me about Catwoman? Talk to me about that whole experience. You know, you know how you have those jobs and you just go, I don't know how I'm going to work again because this was such fun. And it was just, it was just, oh, everything from having to physically transform to, um, to just getting to do something that not only did I never think that I would get to do, I don't think anybody, including Chris, thought that I could do before, before it happened. But I, I was just... You know, I, I'm such a director nerd. I love um, just find, seeking out the best directors I can and then just watching them. And Chris's whole approach to to filmmaking is is one of my favorite ones because to me, it's he's just streamlined the process of making a film while, so he's broken it down to its most minimal, but also his movies are just so huge and ornate. And so that, that combination of, of just really of really being intentional about what it was that we were doing. Um, and, and also he's just so inspiring, but um, yes. yeah. And I also appreciated in a completely different way how strong you have to be be a superhero. Like when we started, Chris sat me down and he said, this conversation with you, it has nothing to do with your appearance. If we've shot tomorrow, I'd be so happy. Um, when we did uh, Inception, Joseph Gordon-Levitt trained for I think it was like 12 weeks to do uh, a four-day stunt sequence because he wanted to do every shot. I expect I, I want you to do ever as much of the stunts stunt work as you can. So I need you to be strong enough to do that. I can't have you be one of those actors that does one take, two takes, and then you're too tired. I want you to do everything. So like that was what he told me to to get me to embrace the physical side of the character and really commit that. What what was it like for you as Wolverine? Because I had to do it once and it was really intense, but you, how many times did you play Wolverine? I did nine movies, but a couple of those were like cameo-ish sort of things. So really seven movies and, uh, and I learned so much. Like over those years, I, I remember... <laughs> I got cast Wolverine, they'd already started filming. I was cast three weeks into filming, I think. Well, I started three weeks in, but they'd already started when I had my audition. They were filming that day and mm-hmm. I did a screen test. Night. So I turned up and you can actually go back. There's a couple of split screenshots going around the internet that showed the difference. And the first day on film, I had to have my shirt off. And Brian Singer didn't tell me anything at the time, but later he said, I, I could only shoot you from here up and have the camera log. Um, because I remember thinking, they, they, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the comic books. I'd never read the comic book before. So I'm looking at the comics. I'm like, uh, how long do I have to get ready for this? And they said, well, we're shooting in three weeks. And I remember thinking, oh, three weeks. I never buffed up for anything really. I was like, 
I think three weeks you can get buffed, I guess, if I go and hit it hard. So I went to the gym. No, they, they, the scene that introduces my character, they moved to the end. So it took me six months. That's right. <laughs> and then, of course, by the time I finished Logan, I was almost 50 where it takes even longer. So um, I just learned what it takes. And, and for me, in some ways, a difficult physical regime mm-hmm. is, is okay because I don't mind hard work particularly when there's a map and physicality there's a map like eat this train this it's going to be hard you have to sleep this and in my mind because i do take it seriously i feel so blessed to have the part and i'm taking on a character that's so beloved to so many i'll commit to that every day of the week right i'll i'll give 110 percent. i find the hard bit of our job is Okay, the last scene of Logan, for example, where my character's dying and I have, I think, one of the most beautiful lines written for the character, which is now I, I, now I know what it feels like. Um, oh, no, so this is how it feels, which is a dual thing about family and about dying, right? And you just have to be there in that moment and feel it all and trust. You can't just... There's no menu or workout schedule or that's going to make sure that it's fine on the day. That mental side of the job, I think, where you're at your best when it matters most and you're most open and relaxed when the pressure is highest, that part of the job I find, I suppose, in a way, the most intriguing and the more I do it, the more... um, sometimes frustrating but actually enticing and but the physical side of it i think i was okay with i think i'd done a lot of sport when i was growing up i was really into dance so there's certainly something about dance in all the stunt work you must have found that right it's really oh yeah and also training as a dancer like gets you ready to train to do stunt stuff because you're just prepared to you know you're like okay i'm gonna be on my feet doing really hard things six to eight hours that's not that that part doesn't scare me you you, you're aware that that's possible i just want to go back to that scene that you were just uh describing with with logan were you in that space where you're like i don't know if i'm me or if i'm the character right now because it occurred to me that, you know, you as Hugh were saying goodbye to the character at the same time that Logan was saying goodbye to his life. So can you tell me get us more about that? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a, another great question. Yeah, there, there was so many crossovers by the end. Um, because I think I'd played it for so long. I'd had the with Jim Mangold, the idea. I knew it was going to be my last one way before we wrote it. I just made that decision. So there was a weight of expectation, you know, that I've been carrying. And I'd had felt maybe for 15 years that Logan or that film was there in that character. I wasn't sure if the studio would allow it or if the world would want to see it, but I felt that that was doing the character justice. So basically what I'm saying is I was super invested and I felt so in it and Again, I was working with a director that I worked with three times before who I trust implicitly, Jim Mangold. And I remember when we shot that scene, it was we were shooting very high altitude and there was thunderstorms going off everywhere and we had to shut down. And so he just said, "Um, we can't do this big stunt scene. Let's go over and do that. We're just going to do the death scene. I'm like, like now? And he goes... (laughs) Yeah, because everyone else, I can't have the tank or the thing, metal. I'm just going to have you and Daphne and if you could just do that. I'm like, all right, okay, which is probably, he knew that's best for me. Like it's better not for me to think about it the night before, worry too much, you know. Wow. So we got down there and we're shooting a scene and he, he came up and he goes, you good? I said, I feel really good about that. And he goes, it was like the second take or something. Like mm. Daphne had... Daphne was 11. Tears. It's just, she was fantastic. So we kind of, I said, shoot Daphne. Shoot, just shoot Daphne. Um, and so we shot Daphne and she turned around to me, two takes. And he said, are you good? I said, I, I feel good. And he said to me, he did one of those. And he goes, let's just keep going. Let's do, an, let's do another. I said, 
You sure? I, I feel okay. And he goes, man, let's just stop the clocks. Let's not worry about everything. This is the end of 19 years. Wow. Sit in it. Sit in it for half an hour. And he rolled the cameras. And him just allowing me that moment because I'm like you, I'm aware of everything. I know the time. I can see the sun going down. They haven't got the shot. We're behind here, blah, blah, blah. He just allowed me to just kind of, not just as an actor, but as Hugh, to remember that moment. And and it was a luxury, but I'll never forget it. And the, the, the takes in, in the movie is in somewhere in that half an hour. I'm not sure which, but there is a, it's like he allowed me to exhale and take off all expectation or worry of time. And I, Jim is a, you know, Jim, right? He's quite a bombastic guy and he moves. And, oh, I, I don't and actually. He, I, oh, you know, no. you would have, you have to work with Jim. I just, you'd love him. And anyway, that moment to me was one of the greatest gifts. When we wrapped, I said, I think that's one of the greatest gifts you've given me. The chance to kind of wow. just take it in, take it in and allow. And, you know, there were some takes where I was weeping and he goes, yeah, we're not going to use that, but good for you. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but he was glad. It was like I went through a whole little thing. It's sorry. I'm so I'm so just on a human level. I'm so glad he gave you that. You know that right. it wasn't just that it wasn't just like um, because I don't know. I, I just love that he didn't let it be. Um, that he allowed the moment of it that you, I feel like you earned that, that the luxury of that space. And I was a big James Mangold fan beforehand, but that makes me an even bigger one. Yeah. He's an artist. He's, he's a really beautiful human being. Um, and funny as hell. Yeah. You, you got to work with him. You'd like him. I bet I bet I bet I bet I bet I like his movies. Hey, um, I hear you're doing another musical, Sesame Street, or have you done it? I'm not, I just no, 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 no. Um, we haven't. Uh, we were supposed to shoot it last year, and um, then I was I was pregnant, and um, so we decided to push it to this year. It's so selfish. It's so <laughs> selfish. And look, it's a lot of pressure on my son. I mean, he better be worth it. He. Is. <laughs> Um, and oh. so then we were going to shoot this year and then obviously the situation being what it is, there is no shooting this year, uh, probably. And, uh, so hopefully we're going to make it next year and it's okay. It's really okay. The, the story keeps evolving and going deeper and it's such a, it's such an amazing team to get to work with this, with the Sesame Street people because they, that whole group and the Jim Henson group and, um, They've all been operating at this level of integrity uh, for so long. And the space that they occupy is one of humor and emotion and uh, silliness and imagination. And so the time that we have, we're not, we never break up the band. We still check in with each other and we're like, okay, so this is going on in the world. How can this movie help explain this to children again? Um, right. and, and it's really, it's really amazing because you know, I, I've made films for a lot of different types of audiences, and I have to say, making uh, uh, films for kids, I, I think it's like when you get tapped in the shoulder to do that, it's one of the luckiest things ever. Because you don't deal with a lot of the, um, I don't know, the, just the stuff that gets in the way. The, the, the stakes couldn't be higher and uh your motivation couldn't be purer you know like wow i get a ch i get the chance to entertain children right now um yeah and then you like you know have like a crazy r-rated bloody movie lined up after it just to keep nice. <laughs> perfect um how about coffee i can do coffee okay um can i get a skull no, that's breakfast. There's something we've never talked about, and I think we need to clear the air. Um, you set me up badly <laughs> when you asked me to host, uh, to, to appear at the Oscars that you hosted, because um, you made it seem, <laughs> and it's really, really not and you may and you did such an amazing job and you were so chill at rehearsals and you just made everything seem like it was so much fun so when it came around and they asked me to do it i was like 
I'm going to be like you. Yeah, I'll give it a go. How could you? <laughs> How could you set me up like that? Is it just um, what made you just what made you decide that you wanted to to do it and how did you actually put the show together because I know there was because because you did it so well congratulations thank you I was so yeah you too but I was so I I, I got the call I was one o'clock in the morning I was on a press tour when I got the call and I I, I just said yes because it was Spielberg calling right so you just say yes. And yes. I'm also like a kid from Sydney, Australia, right? So I grew up watching the Oscars. Like, I've always had this thing, if you're scared of something, of course I was scared in the minute. And, of course, I was like, alarm bills, uh, uh, this is a lose-lose situation here. You know, mm -hmm. you're sure. But I've, 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 I just asked myself the question, okay, if you're on your deathbed and someone goes, yeah, yeah, I think you should have done the Oscars, you know, but I was a bit scared. Then you don't want to be going, yeah, I really should have done it. So I figured I'd say yes. And then I, I remember Deb walking in. I was five minutes later. She walked into the room and she looked at me. And she goes, you okay? And I said, babe, you're about to get into bed with the host of the 81st Academy Awards. And she goes, Billy Crystal's here? <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. True, this exact, but I was scared I was scared for the next two or three months. But then, then, then a lot of what? I'm not a comedian. Why, why am I? This is Billy Crystal. This is like, no. I, what am I doing? And I remember turning up at the first production meeting. You'll remember the same thing. We sat around a table, and there was two sheets of paper that had twelve segments on it, and we were there to make notes. And it had segment one, HJ opening seven slash eight minutes question mark, and. They're going through and said, so that's section uh, segment one. So segment two, we're going to, I'm like, uh, can we just go back to segment one? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, guys, I said, thank you for asking me to do this, but, you know, I'm not a host or a comedian. So what do you, can you give us some help? What do you think? And they said, oh, no, it's just up to you or whatever you want to do. Like, they said, the most that's ever been done was Billy Crystal 14 minutes. He said, I would suggest that's probably too long, but whatever you want to do. And I was like, then I was really scared until we had the idea the recession had happened and and uh rob and dan dan Harmon and rob came up with the idea of the budget oscars and it made me laugh so hard and yeah. i was okay from then you know when you just go oh we've got a really good idea like we're not if this is not hugh jackman go out there and be funny Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there was these guys who just created a scaffolding for me. It was like when you, yeah. you read a script and you just go, oh, okay, I'm scared, but I know this bit will work or that bit will work. And and then just before I went on, I went into the vortex 30 seconds before Valdez, you remember him, the, mm -hmm. the dreadlocks. He's been the stage manager for 20, 30 years or something. And he's like, come and stand here by the curtain a minute, 45 seconds, 30 seconds. And I just started to go into the abyss of fear. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is this? I'm looking out. I can see Meryl Streep. I'm seeing everyone there. I'm going, and I was looking down like this. And he goes, 15 seconds. He goes, good luck out there, Mr. Jackman. Don't forget, there's about a billion people watching. And it just made me giggle and I laugh. Mm. There's actually, if you ever watch me walking on, I'm looking back into the wings laughing. I actually think Valdez saved the show for me. I think I might have gone out shaking. But he just mm -hmm. could see oh, this guy's going into a dark place and I need to snap him out of it. So it's frightening and sometimes it works out and, you know, it's – anyway. Finish that I've sentence, just Hugh. Finish that story. sentence. Sometimes it works this? out and sometimes – Oh, stop it. Stop. I you it. Stop it. Well, anyway, I just – so I, I, I thank you for, for pulling me up on stage. It was so much fun. And I still remember one of your jokes from the opening song when about the budget Oscars when you said, ladies and gentlemen, the Craigslist dancers. I just love that one. <laughs> I love that. So anyway, while we were coming up, the guys came up with an idea of doing the Frost Nixon thing and of getting you up. And I was like, oh, that'd be fantastic. And I said, I just always feel really weird asking people this stuff. Like, I think they feel like 
Ah, oh, it's the Oscars. I don't want to say no, and I don't want to say yes. Yeah. So <laughs> you were just like, yep, yep, yeah, I'm in. Like you were just, I was just like, wow, that's awesome. You were just think, up for it. Well, I remember it was an email about would you be open to it? Would you talk to Hugh? And then we got on the phone, and I remember you had me when you said, so we don't have the entire thing yet, but the joke is basically, I pull you up, we're talking about Frost Nicks, and I'm singing at you, and you're like, Frank Langella was right next to me. And I just started <laughs> giggling. And I just started giggling, and I was just like, okay, I'm going to say, I know I'm going to say yes to this. This is, because I love silly. And um, and it was just that that really fun combination, and... And you who wouldn't want to sing and dance with you? Come on. You're, and by the way, I remember visiting you backstage before you hosted and you were having just so much fun. I was like, I was not this calm and relaxed under me. You were showing me your costume. Look at all these costumes I get to wear. You remember? I was focusing on the parts of the show that I knew worked. <laughs> you know how sometimes your optimism tips into delusion and you're just like if I'm just really really nice to everybody everything's gonna work out um, didn't it did not work in that case but um, I'm so happy that 50% of the people on this uh, on this conversation did a really good job hosting the Oscars oh will you stop no I, I think you gotta stop it's not like First of all, to say yes to do something like that just is, shows generosity of spirit and courage and, and both of us know that, right? It's a scary thing to do and it's a really difficult thing to do and you get one shot at it. You don't really get any previews, nothing like that. And, and please don't be hard on yourself. You did a great job and I think it's, I'm not going to let you just sort of get away with that. Thank you very I'm much. Can cut that last part out. Nobody needs to do that. <laughs> I heard it. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.